Welcome to CBC Journal podcast on Heat Networks, sponsored by Grunfoss. We will be discussing the technical and policy challenges faced by the building services industry in meeting the government's goal of significantly growing the heat network market in the UK. Joining me today, we have three guests. We have Glenn Miller, Product and Solutions Manager, who has worked as an engineer at Grunfoss since 2005. We have Kim Hansen, Business Development and Solutions Manager in District Energy, also at Grunfoss who has been specialising in developing digital solutions for district heating networks. And we have Julie Godfoy, who is the Head of Sustainability at SIBSI and has been involved in SIBSI's response to the government's proposals on growing the number of heat networks in the UK. Kim has spent his career in Denmark, which has been operating heat networks for many years. He will be sharing his experience of this mature market and will be offering advice on how the UK and other countries can best deliver high-performing networks in the future. So in the UK at the moment, approximately 40% of our energy consumption and 20% of greenhouse gas emissions is due to heating and hot water supply in our buildings. The government has legislated that emissions must be net zero by 2050 and has said that the rollout of heat networks would be an important part of the strategy to reduce emissions from buildings. Currently, only around 2% of the UK's heat demand is met by heat networks, and that's mainly using gas as an energy source. The Committee on Climate Change, the independent advisory body to the UK government, has recommended that up to 18% of heat demand should be met by heat networks by 2050, which equates to 5 million homes being connected to heat networks. The committee also emphasised the importance of connecting non-domestic buildings to networks and said that these would account for around 53% of total heat delivered in heat networks by 2050. In its recent heat and building strategy, the government reinforced its commitment to heat networks. The £338 million heat network transformation programme aims to expand the market and as part of this, in April 2022, a green heat network fund in England will replace the Heat Networks Investment Project Fund. SIBSI has published a number of guides to ensure heat networks operate as efficiently as possible. These include the CP1 Code of Practice, a recently published design guide and a guidance note on domestic hot water temperatures. The government also published a consultation on heat network zoning last month, which aims to identify the areas that would most benefit from a heat network in the UK. So there's clearly a lot going on in this area. Um, Julie, you're closely involved with SIBSI's responses to government's proposals in this area, and in particular how heat networks will decarbonise as they move from a gas to an electric heat source. Could you give us a summary of the policy landscape at the moment and the regulatory tools that the government is planning to use to encourage the, the uptake of heat networks? Yeah, so as you say, it it has been quite busy in the last couple of years and on on several fronts. So there's the um, strategic direction, as you said, which is driven um, in large part by the Committee on Climate Change assessment that heat networks should contribute about 18% of heat decarbonisation and specifically in theory for how to treat properties that would have fewer other options, especially in dense areas, etc. And um, so that's one element strategically that the CCCR have recommended. The other one is that they have recommended that existing gas-fed networks or all gas-fed networks should have decarbonized by 2040. So what we have so far are proposals by government that address the first part, how to uh, grow the take-up of heat networks, and I'll come on to that. We don't quite have 
proposed that address the decarbonisation of existing heat networks, and that is an area that we keep pushing government on. So in terms of growing heat networks, there's various tools that government have. As you say, um, there's the heat net, Green Heat Network Fund with some criteria where essentially, simplistically speaking, um, funding would be allocated to networks that deliver at least as well as an air source heat pump. There's various discussions about how that would be assessed and what carbon factors we might use for this, but funding is one thing. The other is, as you said, the consultation on zoning, where there the idea is that government would create a national methodology so to identify in which areas a heat network is the most viable solution for decarbonizing the building stock. And in these zones, then certain types of buildings would have to connect as long as it's commercially viable. There may be some caveats, for example, buildings with very low heat demand may have some flexibility, but we're still analysing the consultation and it is still a consultation. Thanks, Judy. So, so Kim, in, in that context, um, how do you see district heating fitting into the larger energy picture? First of all, I will say that, that Julia has totally correct and historical um, district heating has been part of CHP plants, meaning they have simply cooled the turbines and been a byproduct for these uh, CHP plants. And looking forward, we have to look into a different future. By different future, meaning that the producing is not going to be uh, on carbon. It has to be on heat pumps. It has to be on an electricity, actually. I think that that district heating will be essential for the district heating, for, for the electrification of the whole society, because we are going to produce on windmills, we are going to uh, produce electricity on sun, and that means that the electricity will be fluctuating, and there will be periods where we will have too much um, energy, and that can be placed in district heating with a heat pump or, or things like that, and that means that the future for district heating in a lot of countries will have a great future. I kind of think as well that um, the actual impact of district heating will uh, impact on the bigger energy picture with the increase of technology and lessons learned from systems that have gone in before. So I think it's never evolving picture. And as, as Kim says, as we start to get um, more surplus energy about then the actual way that we reuse it and triage it into different areas will change as well. And also when you say surplus heat, we see in um, in Denmark, uh, in, in Germany and in France that, that more and more industry who has surplus heat are actually now delivering into the district heating system, meaning that now instead of cooling it up to the air, we're actually using the energy, we're already producing. It makes great sense here. Yeah, and obviously Denmark has been doing heat networks for a very long time. And what what lessons from Denmark can be adopted by other countries who are only just starting out on this path? Well, you can say that, that Denmark is, is for sure coming from CHP plants. Um, we have had many government decisions that it was a really good idea producing electricity on a big engine and then um, by gas and then using the heat for district uh, heating. And we have a huge change management in Denmark right now about that, meaning that, that we 
now really are looking into other production methods. Also because the electricity, not right now, but for the last 10 years, uh, the price has been very, very low. And so it hasn't been a good deal for any citizens to have district heating in small cities when it was based on gas uh, producing electricity and engine. Actually, it's been very, very uh, expensive and there's been a lot of carbon uh, released uh, with these production methods. So we can see there's a lot of funding in Denmark now going toward uh, heat pumps and also making big boilers, you can say, because we have a lot of windmills in Denmark. And there are periods where we are exporting more than a thousand megawatt hour electricity for Norway or for Germany. And we're actually paying them to take the electricity. Instead, we could put it into district heating. We have now a lot of 20 megawatt boilers and also some big cities have 60 megawatt boilers who are now producing district um, heating from electricity. And how far down the path is Denmark in swapping out the gas turbines for heat pumps? Is, is that starting already? Has, have they been retrofitted some of these heat networks? Yeah, a lot of places been retrofitting, but we are not there at all yet. Uh, I will take uh, five, ten years more before we are really there. In some places, uh, they are looking at geothermal also as a possibility. Um, there's a lot of alternatives right now, but everybody's agreed about that biomass may not be the future. There are more and more experts that saying that the decision made in EU about it, it is carbon neutral is more political decision than it is a fact-based decision. So we are looking at, at, at a lot of things right now, uh, and we have stopped making biomass plants because everybody can see that uh, we have to, to look at the facts. And how, how much will heat networks have to change to accommodate a heat pump instead of a, um, a gas CHP? Well, the big issue is that a lot of places in Denmark still we are delivering district heating with a very high temperature. And uh, that means 80 degrees and in Copenhagen, some place 100 degrees, 110 degrees on the mm. pressure. And um, we have to go down to maybe 65, which is enough for district heating supply uh, temperature. But this transition is, is, is ongoing right now. And of course, the bigger the city is, the more we are thinking about zones. And here, Confos has made a, a solution where we say we cannot eat the elephant in, in one bite uh, if it's Copenhagen. But there is zones in Copenhagen where we can go down to a supply temperature of maybe 65 or even maybe 60 degrees. And we have done that. Confos has delivered several solutions uh, in the Copenhagen area for that. Uh, so that's, that's, that's the journey we are on right now. One thing to remember here as well is that the lower that you get the temperature, the more efficient it is. And also as well, it does impact on billing. It impacts on the contracts that you have commercially as well. So if you can make things more efficient by dropping the temperature, even if you do it by, you know, because you can zone things down, you can control it a lot better. So it also impacts on the way things are paid for as well. So there's, there's manageable pluses all the way around by dropping the temperature on circuits. And you can also say in Denmark, we have a, a few data centers right now, but Apple, Google, all the big tech companies are planning to have more data centers in Denmark. And they can actually also deliver a lot of surplus heats, but that's about just about 30 degrees that they're living at by. But they can maybe deliver 30 megawatt. Then we need a heat pump. But we're going to actually supply a city with maybe 50,000 citizens from just one uh, data center. Not only that, as I said, there's a lot of industries uh, that are producing surplus heat uh, we can chip into. It's always a political issue. Should there be taxed on that surplus heat? Uh, should it not be taxed? 
X and and I, I can see some countries is really struggling with using this because uh, it the name is surplus and when surplus then the tax say hey you gotta have something here <laughs> maybe we should call it waste energy or something like that then it shouldn't have anything but if you look at it from a, from a society view uh, no doubt of course every energy source out there that is today blown out in the wind should put into district uh, heating if possible. So yeah, Denmark is doing a lot about that. We have one big plant in, in a city north of here that can actually supply uh, Aalborg as the name of the city uh, with all this energy. And that's living about 150,000 people in this, uh, in this city. So um, the possibility is many. And I think there's a lot of uh, existing technology to actually make everything more energy efficient. It's very, very hard to, to explain sometimes to these politicians that we have to do something now. We have the technology now. And actually, there's made a report in Denmark showing that uh, we want to go 70% in uh, 2030. And uh, district heating in Denmark can deliver 44% of them, but not by sitting on our hands. We have to change the legislation in Denmark. Uh, but if we do that, we can come very, very far. And a lot of places, we are doing a lot. But there's still space for, for more. Okay. From a technical point of view, what are the key considerations when designing heat networks? Well, if you look at the, at the possibilities, then of course production, it has to be carbon neutral. Uh, note about that. And then there is possibilities out there at the heat pump. We have uh, solar, we have uh, electricification, and we have geothermal. There is the possibilities. Uh, if you look at new one. And then of course, the way you construct the grid. Uh, in the old days, you really didn't care. Uh, you just wanted a, a cheap grid because we had some cool water back for the turbines. Who cared how much energy we lost actually in the grid? But today, uh, it, it is very, very important that we don't lose that much uh, energy in the grid. A good example in Denmark is that if you produce 10,000 megawatt hours, you probably sell nine. So you have, saw, you have lost 10% in the grid. Mm -hmm. And that is also due to the construction a lot of places you have um, substations with the heat exchangers. That means you have a hydraulic separation uh, and you will lose temperature over that substation. Uh, not energy, but temperature. But you will lose energy in the grid because now you have to have a higher supply temperature because you're losing temperature. And sometimes you have two or three of those on the way to the end consumer. So mm -hmm. in Grundfos, of course, we don't do... Uh, Heat exchange, and we want to do it by pumps. So we have, the, we don't have the hydraulic uh, separation, but have one uh, direct network grid all the way around. Mm -hmm. And then uh, one thing more that is very important is that there's been a journey uh, how to build the end customer. In the beginning, it was all about cubic meters. Uh, then it went to how much energy are they actually taking out of the water. But today, I would say you have to do a combination. And why a combination? Yeah, because the energy is, is actually the facts, how much energy are you, are you taking out of the water? But if you also have a building on the cubic meters, then the end customer will be very, very, uh, their attention on his um, installation because yeah. it has to perform very well. Think about how you produce it, how you build your grid and how you actually build your end customers. That's the three main things if you build a new grid. What we have to think about with the Sibsley audience is how we can take all this good stuff that's happened in the Nordic areas and then bring it over to the United Kingdom. Because to be quite honest, we are fairly much in the infancy district. And yeah, we've had a few, like we've got Manchester, we've got some places down in London. And we 
the lucky thing is, is, is that we can kind of start from scratch. So we can take all of these good ideas without all of the time pain of going through different systems. And also as well, we're kind of looking at building from new as well as retrofit. So how can we impact on getting a better carbon neutral aspect during the construction phase? So having things that are like plug and play using digital aspects. So it's using the technology that people like Kim has developed with the iGrid system. How can we put that down to sort of like reduce the impacts of build, reduce the impacts of hot work on site, reduce the impacts of waste packaging just by doing modular build, minimizing the amount of groundworks that go on. So again, you're cutting down the carbon neutrality. But then again, once it's up and running, using the digital aspects to trim to trim the system and as Kim says, produce more heat from less cubic meterage. And and just to follow up on Gwen, uh, you can say that here IT and digitalization pay plays a huge role. Again, going back, nobody cared about this water going out. Uh, just as long as it came back colder, everybody was happy. Uh, and some in customer actually got heat in their houses and their flats. It was perfect. But right now, we're really looking into getting as much knowledge as possible in the grid and making sure that you don't have too much heat or temperature to high temperature and that you don't have too much pressure. And, and you can say that the heating can, can control how much pressure is going to deliver in the system and how much supply temperature. But it is the end customer's installation that decides how efficient is it going to be on return temperature. And today, with a lot of cooling around the, the, the production, it can make a huge difference from how much energy you actually can get out of your energy source. So digitalization is also a huge part of what is happening right now in Denmark. Uh, not just by energy meters that we now can capture everything from, but actually measuring a lot of points in the grid. So Glenn, how will monitoring and digitization help with the operation of the grid? Um, if you can take a small analogy, so if you look at the difference between a naturally aspirated car engine with a carburetor and one with a full fuel management system on, the actual efficiency use of fuel and power development is sort of like immeasurable between the two. So what you have to kind of think about with the digital aspect is kind of like this management system being put onto a naturally aspirated engine. So it takes something that's already good and it fine tunes it. Now, what this means is, is that it will work better now. But what we have to think about is what's it going to be like in like a few years' time when the system starts to denigrate, when the system starts to get filled up with things. What the, what the digital aspect will do, it will actually tune that to run it more efficiently as possible for a longer period of time. And then it helps with the service, it helps with predictive breakdown, predictive maintenance, so it kind of helps on that side but also with the future-proofing aspect as well. Legislation might change. The targets may change, right? And it's hard to swap out hardware, but what it's easy to do is use the digital application to tune it even better. So with the digital monitoring of heat networks, they're only going to improve over time? Precisely. It's, it's that piece yeah. of layer cake you put on the top. We, we have invented a lot of um, machine learning and, and um, that sort of thing, and, and that's really going to help us improve the energy efficiency in the future. It's a vital thing that we have only to produce the amount of heat that is needed. That, that, and we have to be quite precisely, not 100%, but somewhere between 98% and 102%. Uh, 
uh, where today you just produce heat, as I said, and then you just put it into the grid and let's hope it's come back uh, so long. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's a good continuation from digitalization because say in, in, earlier we just had some big city pumps in the district heating plant that supplied the whole city. Uh, today, there's been a lot of uh, calculations showing that a distributed network is a lot, lot better and you can save a whole lot of money by doing that. Smaller pumps, more places in the network, not only on the supply, but also on the return line. So we're actually sucking, not only pumping in. So yes, in, in, in the future network, we would do distributed pumping. But again, then you have to have less substations with heat exchange and, and hydraulic separation. Because every time you have that, you lose all the pressure and you have to create it again. And that costs any need. So, so how can we build in best practice and, and future-proof a district heating system? Looking at newer district heating plants in, in, in the Nordic countries and, and also in France and, and other places in, in Europe. First of all, again, consider what should be the production and how do we make it carbon uh, neutral. Uh, it simply doesn't make sense any longer to make biomass uh, district heating plants. And I know there are some in the scope here and there, but but it will only be a short term and then everybody will go away from that again, for sure. And and then uh, look for the newest technology in uh, how to control uh, the grid and the production. That That is the main things to look in for. Yeah, I think I think I think the main dynamics of this are going to be um, what the software applications can do. Because things are developed, like all other digital stuff, it's developed online. Um, it's a bit different to hardware design and manufacture. So with things like frequency converters that you put onto the pumps with closed loop control to actually manage the water going through, the actual development rate and installation, all that sort of thing, is a much longer cycle than um, digital aspects because what you'll find online is that behaviors can be watched. Algorithms can watch behaviors. So it goes far deeper than the actual pumps themselves. So the pumps won't go so far, and the development process on that will be better materials, better closed-loop control, more efficient drives, less heat output from drives, um, the actual use of uh, the way pumps are used in circuits to mix between the hot and the cold. But on the actual uh, future-proofing side, it's going to be the analysis of how individual systems work and how they're tuned. So again, because you've got a central online place as well, you can watch how one system is working and apply that good stuff to other systems so you know what works, what doesn't work. So I think there's going to be a mix between the two. There'll be a slower level of development and future-proofing on the hardware side but I think there will be massive inroads into the way things work, digital aspects. And how do we know that heat networks are working correctly? How can we make sure that customers aren't faced with rising bills because good operation isn't maintained? It is for sure the carbon. Uh, how much uh, CO2 are we polluting with? Because um, as uh, Julia said in the beginning, uh, it's very, very important that, that decarbonisation is happening and uh, district heating has to be part of that. It has to be a huge part of that. And it can be if it's constructed correctly. And, and, and that it should be measured by that, not only replacing uh, existing gas, uh, it should also do it with a lot less carbon in the air. And, and you're optimistic that, that that can be achieved from, from what 
you've experienced in in Denmark and and elsewhere. It can it can if the politician uh, really want to do this, it is for sure possible. But there's always uh, somebody who thinks uh, electricity will save the world. It has to be a combination of electricity and just heating and some other sources out there, power to X and, and all this kind of stuff we are looking at. But but district heating is a co-player for all the electrification that is happening. You talked about using pumps in district heating. Could you describe in more detail the benefits of doing so? The thing about pumps in a district heating network is that there's always been a choice. You control things by valves or you control things by pumps. The thing is with valves, they're static and it always relies on a mainline BMS system then associate with that because you've got the valves really you've got to have the heat exchangers so on a design to value aspect what you'll find is a pumps probably the better design to value aspect of that but the different the main difference is between valves and pumps is that pumps can dynamically control independently through closed loop control if you have control valves, then you're looking at putting in extra sensors, you're looking at putting in um, extra calculations within the sort of the main BMS PLC, where what you'll find with pumps, you know, especially the Glomfoss ones, these e-pumps are great, aren't they? So what you do is you put a sensor on, you put in the main control aspects, we want to work on flow, pressure, and all that sort of thing, and you've got it works independently. So what you kind of do from the controller is just give it global commands so when you get this and Kim alluded to this earlier on as well about smaller pumps working differently in smaller areas it's a bit of a hive mentality where it's off busy doing its own little part and doesn't really have to take into account what's happening on other parts of the circuit because they automatically adapt so what you'll find is is that you get this equilibrium with the pumps working symbiotically together but there's only like a, a master controller in the background tweaking here and there. And this is the main advantage of using pumps in circulation systems rather than control valves. And again, with the inefficient heat exchangers as well. So Kim, what could politicians do to help us achieve net zero targets? I, I love when they're talking about future uh, technology to save us. And that's a really gr- a good dream to have. But I think that they took a look at what do we have right now, but what can we actually do tomorrow? And we have a lot of technologies that cannot put us all the way, but that can really help us today. So we don't get this hockey stick that we only do 5% the next five years, and then we do 95% the last two years. It's not realistic, simply. We have a lot of tools out there, not only Quantfors, there's a lot of companies who have invented things that we can start with tomorrow and that can maybe help us 50 or 60% of the way. And then it's realistic that in the end, power to x or something more will come in and take the rest. But we have to start acting to now. Next week is too late. And what do you think, Glenn? What we need to do is get to kind of like a warlike footing because you only get acceleration during times of need. What the general world population needs to understand is the time of need. What, what what you'll find is, is that you get technology acceleration through desperation and you'll find that in certain areas. Intensive heating will be one of these. When the need is required, and the thing is, 
it's down the road. It's not as if, you know, things are happening instantly. So it's kind of getting that mindset to get that acceleration going. Once the acceleration comes, as Kim says, we'll squeeze as much as we can out of the technology that we have immediately. And then comes the need to invent, the drive to invent. But what the politicians have to do is drive that intent fear to get that squeeze and then get that developed. So that would be my message to them, especially with district heating networks, because, you know, as the new schemes are coming online and the way that the building trends are going, where people just aren't building simple, you know, one building, they're building networks of buildings together. Mm. So that, the, the trend is going that way. We can do a lot of stuff to off-site build. We can do a lot of stuff, um, and we can just drive that first. Grumfrost has been on the sustainability message for 70 years. If you look at the Grumfrost company history and the way we're set up, sustainability, energy reduction, water reuse um, to combat water scarcity is one of our core principles. Our products, the way we do things, the way we work, the way we work with people, customers and clients is underpinned by this core strategy that we have that's been about since the inception of the company. So this is something that we talk about all the time. This isn't new to us. It's just that we're glad that everyone else is kind of getting on board with it now. Well, thanks very much for your your contributions, Kim, Glenn and and Julie. And there'll be links at the bottom of this podcast to the policy documents and and the Grandforce link as well. So, So please check that out. And until the next time, goodbye.